Hi, I'm Simon Russell, founder of Behavioural Finance Australia. I'm here with Julian Morrison, National Key Account Manager at the Contrarian Investment Manager, Alan Gray, in Sydney. Julian and I share an interest in behavioural finance, the impacts of psychological forces on investors and on markets. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Simon. Julian and I have done a few things together in the past. I quoted Julian a couple of times in my first book on behavioural finance. And the reason for that was that Alan Gray provided um, some practical examples of how to apply some of the principles I was discussing in the book about group decision making and other things. Um, we've also jointly presented on a number of seminars and workshops on behavioural finance and investment related issues. Um, but today we're going to focus a brief discussion on one particular element of behavioural finance being the power of social influence. So Julian, would you like to kick us off by telling us what you mean or think of by social influence or herding? Sure, thank you, Simon. Yeah, by social influence, we would tend to think about the fact that people tend to look at what other people are doing to help inform them about what to do themselves in a particular situation. And so if, for example, you're choosing a restaurant to go and eat at, um, it works very well in most areas of life. In the, the restaurant example, you'd much rather go and choose a restaurant where there's lots of people who look happy and they're eating and smiling and having a good time than to go to a restaurant that's dark and dingy, no one's in it, and there's a waiter swatting flies. Um, so social influence in that type of situation can be a very effective shortcut to making a decision about the best course of action. It's just that in investing, and that's the area obviously we're talking about today, we find it can be counterintuitive, it can actually be counter to making good decisions. Yeah, I think it's fantastic you raised the positive aspects to it because social influence, I mean, there's a reason we have all these biases in there that tends to help us over time. Uh, I think the restaurant example is a good one. And in fact, in the, in the book, I look at a, a range of ways that advisors can use social influence, the power of social, social influence in a positive way to better influence, to nudge clients with the use of social norms, with uh, testimonials and case studies, for example, that are going to help their clients reach um, better decisions. Um, but a couple of things, I guess. One is that that works in some situations, but not in others, which is what we're going to touch on. And the second thing is, often these things are happening beyond our awareness. So yes, you might consciously look at the restaurant that's got the guy swatting flies, as you say, but in many cases, actually, you can uh, be influenced beyond your awareness, and that's, I guess, how some of the dynamics can play out in investment markets, which uh, hopefully we can touch on next. Sure, so it's not always obvious in people, or conscious in people's minds why they're making a decision. Yeah, in fact, I gave an example in the book where I ran a little study where I actually gave people an investment scenario, and a part of that scenario, I gave them a little bit of information saying, hey, some novice investors at a, at a seminar for, for, for beginners think that this is a good investment. And I split people into two groups, and thinking, well, this should be, logically, it should be irrational, irrational or, or, or irrelevant for me to rely on some of these, um, what, what these beginner investors think. But when you compare the two groups, the groups who had seen the positive response from the group of novice investors, well, they were more likely to choose that investment than were the other group, as an example. It's amazing how powerful it can be. Indeed. So, from an investment context, so how do you think about sort of social influence? How does it fit into the process? Well, in terms of an investment perspective, one of the main things that we see social influence as creating is this idea of competition. And so, in whatever endeavour you're, you're involved in, and in this case investing, if you face massive competition uh, in, the, in the thing you're trying to achieve, you're more likely to get an average result or a poor result than a good result um, versus if you face no competition. 
So if you face very little competition, generally, with most things it tends to be easier to do well. And one of the ways I've tried to describe this um, in a simplified way is when presenting to a room full of people on, on this idea of contrarian investing is to, is to say, okay, so if I said there's a hundred people in this room and somewhere in this room there's, there's a hidden suitcase and it's got a million dollars in, um, three, two, one, go look for it. Whoever finds it can keep the million dollars. Now, assuming everyone believed me, then a competition would ensue and people would scramble around. And you might say that it's a fair approximation that each person would have a 1% chance of finding that suitcase, given there's a hundred of them. Now, if you suddenly reduce the number to two people, and I told them the same thing, whatever the, the probability is, it's suddenly risen a lot. It's, it's more like 50% chance of finding the suitcase. And that, albeit oversimplified, explains the notion of competition. If you're involved in a, an endeavor to do well or to win something, it's much better not to face lots of competition. And how do they get out of the room afterwards at that point? So there's a 50% chance you find the suitcase, there's a 10% chance you get out of the room alive, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, I, and it depends on, on the other personal people in the room, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, one of the examples that uh, I think fits quite nicely with your suitcase example is one of my kids' uh, roller skating um, examples where they went to a roller rink, they probably had 100 people, so actually quite similar to your suitcase example in that case as well and they spun a wheel. So they said, everybody go to a corner of the rink, which they labeled A, B, C, and D. They spun the wheel, and if it came out with A, all the people with A stayed in the competition, but the B, Cs, and Ds were all eliminated. And then the A's got to then reallocate to A's, B's, and C's. They spun the wheel again, and, and they get to reallocate. Uh, and so over time, you get whittled down to an eventual winner. But the concept there, I guess, is that, well, it's random whether it's A, B, or C, or D. So your best strategy actually is to go to the corner with the fewest people. So at least if yours comes up, which is a 25% chance in each case, at least you get a better chance of being an ultimate winner uh, if you're standing with only one or two people than if you're standing with 25. So how do you sort of think about these sort of concepts and actually apply them in your investment process? Well, if you think about it, the, the fact that a lot of people are pursuing a particular investment, for example, or behaving in, in the same way toward a particular investment opportunity, should lead to a number of things happening and so a few of the things that we will look at is, is, is simple things like the price movement. So if you have a, a very strong rise or fall in price it means that there's quite a, a strong reaction or behaviour of people toward that stock. And you might look at that in conjunction with broad sentiment and understand what sentiment is and why it is. So one of the things we look at um, is broker recommendations. So um, if all of the brokers in the market are recommending a strong buy on a stock, typically we'll be very wary of that. We'll look for independent viewpoint and saying why could that be wrong, uh, rather than focusing on what these brokers are telling everyone to buy. And vice versa, if everyone's roundly negative on something, it could actually be an interesting idea um, as a potential investment. And it comes down to the, to the sentiment. So what I mean by that is that in the, in the world of investing, if we, if we look at the stock market, it's not that people focus on the wrong things per se. Everyone knows what's good in a company. You want, you want a company that's a strong company, that's profitable, that has a, a rising uh, measure of earnings, that has good management, that has a product that you can see is sustainable or, or long-lasting, um, where the industry dynamics are positive for the company. The, the troublesome thing is that those are all good things, but everybody who contemplate buying the share wants those things as well. And so if they exist, 
you're definitely in that long queue. So going back to our example before about not facing competition, this is the idea that you are in a, in a, in a competition or a long queue with many other people to achieve this. So it's like going to the auction where there's 50 other people bidding for the house. If you do buy the house, you'll end up paying a high price. Yeah, the auction's interesting. I, I, um, in the book, I have a chapter on property and I talk about auctions in that context as well, but really the same thing applies to buying a business or, uh, or a, a private equity transaction, I mean. Um, and that, in that case, it's the winner's curse, the idea of the winner's curse, that where you face uncertainty about valuation and where you face competition, that the people who are uncertain and happen to be high, well, they're the people who win the auction, and they then suffer the curse, the curse being that you pay too much for it. So I talk about different strategies for avoiding the winner's curse, but one is to avoid competition if you can. Uh, not always easy, of course, if you're out buying a property uh, <laughs> to find one that nobody else wants. Uh, or to avoid uncertainty. Avoiding uncertainty as well limits the range of uh, potential bids, at least if you suffer the winner's curse in that case. Uh, the curse is less worrisome, I guess. You're less likely to overpay where there's less uncertainty. In the investing context, that willingness to let things go, let someone else take something at a high price, what you think is a high price, can be very difficult when all of the headline information sounds appealing. Yeah. i just touch on a couple other things I've talked about in the book. One is the, the challenge that advisors face in getting clients to think in these sort of terms. Because if clients are sort of stuck in what I've called in the book first order thinking, so thinking about the company directly, uh, and are not thinking at all around what I've called second order thinking, so how thinking about how others think about the company, well, then we're sort of stuck in the dynamic of how good is the company and not thinking about some of those other issues. And so that's a real challenge, and I give a couple of examples in the book with little games and examples that um, advisors can use. The Keynes' Beauty Contest is, is, is one uh, in there. But the other interesting thing I find, I guess, in my work around with professional investment teams is that whilst definitely there's a higher level of sophistication and definitely people are consciously talking about some of those, these sorts of issues, there isn't necessarily a systematic approach across the investment industry to say, well, we've got a systematic approach, we do our DCF or we do our multiples and we do our industry analysis, we've got a systematic structured approach around the investing, but do we have a similar structured investment approach, evidence-based approach on thinking about the decision-making biases of the market and other participants in the market. Well, the answer to that, in my view, is much less so. There's much less sophistication there, and there's, I think, a real uh, area where some improvements can be made to investment processes in the professional context as well. Sure. I think on, on the first point, in terms of how advisors might explain it to clients, there's uh, one of the simplest ways to think about it is that successful investing is not necessarily about buying something that is good, it's about buying something well and that means underpaying for it rather than overpaying for it. And in the context of the fund management industry and the processes applied by fund managers, um, that behavioural error is just as important as it is for an individual investor and whilst some people may perceive fund managers as more sophisticated, ultimately Fund managers are human beings as well. Some of them. Some of them. <laughs> some of them are. <laughs> all right, so, um, well, I'm sure we could talk about this all day. Um, we'd better wrap it up there so we don't take too much of our listeners' time. But if uh, listeners would like to get in touch with you, Julian, and find out more about Alan Gray's approach, what's the best way? Well, people can go straight to our website. That's www.alangray.com.au. 
and um, my contact details and those of my many of my colleagues on the, the website, so we'd be happy to take questions or queries from people. Fantastic. And if they'd like to get in touch with me, that well, they can read more about the power of social influence, both the positive and the negatives, uh, in my new book, Behavioural Finance, A Guide for Financial Advisors. It's available online um, through Amazon Book Depository and others. Uh, it's primarily designed for financial advisors, but also contains a number of strategies that are relevant for super funds, asset managers and others as well. Or people can get in touch with me via my website, behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au. Thanks for your time, Julian. Thanks, Simon.